Welcome to 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night, a production of the McFarland Group. My name is Deb McFarland Enright. What happens when the individual you began to talk about race with years ago agrees to come on to your podcast to end the series you began right after Mr. Floyd's murder to begin to understand as a white woman the social construct of race and its deleterious effect on Americans as a people. Quite frankly, what happens is a spirited, strong conversation that will direct my actions moving forward. My guest for this episode of 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night, is Paula Madison. Paula Madison is an American journalist, writer, business person, executive, and a former NBC Universal executive who is now CEO of a family investment group based in Chicago. On May 20, 2011, she retired from NBC after more than 35 years in the news media. She left NBC to understand the history of her family and to find them. The pursuit brought forth a documentary and a memoir, both titled Finding Samuel Lowe. We talk about belonging, mixing familial expectations with cultural assimilation, the ideas of diversity, inclusion and identity, and finally, forgiveness, or the lack thereof. Over the past few years, I've had the opportunity to listen and learn from Paula as we debriefed after meetings and programs while serving our undergraduate alma mater, Vassar College, through our Alumni Association. I've had the chance to spend evenings with her and others learning about race through their stories as my long-held beliefs were challenged for their ignorance. I loved every minute of those conversations. Paula takes us on a ride from discovery to possible redemption. There is so much to learn. Let's jump in. Paula, it really is an honor for me in how I came to know you and how you have taken time to walk with me even prior to this series and to understanding notions of race and understanding of oppressions because of race. And I think what's always struck me as quintessential to who you are is to lead the learner in a variety of ways. So it is through anecdotes, but it's also through real-time frustration as you and I have been through episodes of watching racism happen in that moment in front of us. And you've never made it easy for me. You've never made it cut and clean. You've just like, you've just said, yes, yeah, so here's the reality. So if you really want to know, here's the reality. And, I, and I've always appreciated that, although it has never, never been comfortable, which I think is why it, those lessons have been lasting. So having you here for the end piece of this series means a lot to me personally, but I think also to those folks who are going to be listening today, it will mean a lot. I'd like to just go ahead and dive in if if you're ready. Sure. Let me thank you first for having me and for all those gracious comments. And it's kind of a daunting responsibility to know that the various conversations and interactions that we've had seem to have impressed you, and I should say impressed upon you so much, the reality of what it means to be not a white person here in the United States. So I'm eager to have the conversation with you and thank you again for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I believe just to get started that your journey is especially important to this series and actually to this moment for helping what I believe to be a predominantly white privileged audience to practice anti-racism, right? In all facets of life for the rest of our lives and understanding what that's about. I also believe this is very important because you are mixed-raced, but not in what whites might see as as that binary black-white. In fact, as an African-American and Asian. And that comes with a complexity of challenges to belonging, to being othered, to being marginalized, but in a moment where perhaps that's also being lifted 
because by the time the podcast is posted, we may not have gone to Inauguration Day, but we will for our vice president have somebody who is biracial, um, actually in, in a similar vein to yours. So let's start out with understanding what being biracial of ethnicities that don't include white, mm-hmm. how that affected growing up in particular. Sure. Well, to summarize this, my grandfather was Chinese. I never met him. Uh, my grandfather immigrated from China to Jamaica in 1905. My mother was born in Jamaica in 1918 to, as I stated, a Chinese father and an Afro-Jamaican mother. And she had a very difficult childhood in that she was separated from her father by her mother because there came a point where, again, in terms of um, the satisfaction of uh, filial responsibilities and duties, my grandfather's parents sent a Chinese bride to marry him sight unseen in Jamaica once the immigration uh, rules were lifted and they allowed Chinese women to come. Prior to then, most Western nations didn't allow Chinese women to come to their countries unless they, they, they fell into that very small percentage of them who were sex workers. They were prostitutes. But you couldn't bring your wife. You couldn't bring mother, sister, daughter. So you had tens of thousands of Chinese men who left their families behind and then pretty much created new families in this new world. So in my mother's case, my mother, despite being mixed race, half black, she didn't look half black at all. She looked Chinese. Uh, My mother immigrated to the U.S. in 1945. And I learned later on she immigrated to the U.S. largely to escape her relationship with my father, who was African-Jamaican. So here we have a circumstance where My mother lived in a predominantly black nation. Uh, It was part of the British uh, Empire at that point, but a predominantly black nation. She looked Chinese. And so she was a part of what would have been considered a buffer group. You know, at the very tip, tip top would have been the British colonialists. Below them would have been the Chinese, the Syrians, the Lebanese, the Jews, who ran the commercial enterprises in Jamaica. And she didn't fit in either group, really, although she looked to be Chinese. So when she immigrated to the United States, my father chased after her, long story short. They married. It was a tumultuous and unhappy relationship, which produced three children. I'm the youngest. So we grew up, my two older brothers and I grew up in Harlem in the 50s and 60s, And by appearance, we are black. Growing up with a mother who by appearance is Chinese. So that created for us at a very, very, very early age, a recognition that until or unless our mother came onto the scene, we appeared to be black kids. But when she came onto the scene, there was a lot of head whipping back and forth, not understanding, like, what is this? Who is that woman? What? What? And my friend, and she is my friend, Kamala Harris, had a similar kind of upbringing. Her father, too, is African-Jamaican. Her mother was an immigrant from India. Uh, So she is of South Asian descent. I am of East Asian descent. But the fact remains that the similarities are that her, her mother lived in a predominantly Black neighborhood. And Kamala and her sister, Maya, were raised in appearance as fair-skinned Black people, they knew they were mixed race, they knew they were biracial, but they got away, I'll put that in quotes, they got away with just being Black kids until their mother showed up. And then it was like, wait, what? What? What is happening here? Uh, As we got to the unearthing of our histories, our legacies, our childhoods, we laughed and we become dear friends at that point and continue till today. The interesting part is being black and being undercover, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Not deliberately undercover, but undercover. 
you know, as you stated up top, I have anecdotes. And so here's here's one quick one. Years ago, I was a reporter at a newspaper called the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And I was sitting at my desk and I was at that newspaper in that in that newsroom, may, maybe for just a few months, couldn't have been more than a few months. And standing next to my desk where I was actually writing a story were, you know, the hotshot reporters. There were four white guys who were standing near my desk because I had a not a key location. I was kind of near a passage. So they were standing there where they sort of collected and they were just shooting it. And one of them said, oh yeah, man, it was like a Chinese fire drill. And they all started laughing. Mm. And I thought to myself, what's a Chinese fire drill? Mm. But the guffaws were not kindly. Do you understand? I mean, I knew buried in there, there was something that just wasn't good. I got four white guys standing by my desk and they're laughing in a way that made my skin crawl. So I did what made sense to me. I stood up and I walked over to them and I asked them, "Uh, sorry, I couldn't help but over here, what's a Chinese fire drill? And they were like, oh, come on, you know what a Chinese fire drill is. And I, no, actually I don't. Now, again, I'm in Fort Worth, Texas. They knew that I wasn't from there. They knew that I, in fact, was a northerner, that I was from New York City. Specifically, I'm from Harlem. But after the, oh, you know what it is, exchange, I said, no, I don't. And one of them said, well, you know, it's like you're driving and there's like four of you in a car and you're at the stoplight and then everybody opens the doors at the same time and runs around the car and gets back in. And I said, okay, (laughs) that's it? And they said, yeah. And I said, uh, uh, am I missing something? And they were like, come on, it's funny. You know, it's funny. And I said, well, what? why is it a Chinese fire drill? Oh, because it's all confusion, you know, ching, chong, ching. And they started that. And I froze inside and collected myself. And I said to these guys, and at this point I was probably 26, maybe 27 years old. I don't know, somewhere around that. And I said to these guys, um, why is it a Chinese fire drill? And they looked at me, listen, everybody knows what this is. And I said, well, first of all, I grew up in New York and we didn't have cars and it sounds like a high school kind of thing. So no, I took the subway. And I said, but it does sound to me like this is racist. And they were like, what? They, what? I said, let me say it to you this way. I know that if I were not present, there would be a similar derogatory statement about Black people. But because I'm here, you're kind of being a little careful. I said, so let me make it clear to you. If you say something like that around me again, I'm going to kick your ass. And they they looked at me and I said, yep. I said, you may actually get the better of me, but before it's all over, I promise you, I will kick your ass. And, it, it, you know, suffice it to say there was a chill and they kind of looked at me and I said, um, just so you know, my grandfather was Chinese. Oh, and by the way, I got Puerto Ricans and Cubans in my family. It's probably best that you just don't say any of that shit anywhere near me. Mm. And, mm. And, and they were like, so of course I got an immediate reputation of being that girl. And I was okay with that. I was completely okay with that because growing up the way I grew up and with my mother clearly not fitting in, not, not, not only because of her looks, but because she had a heavy Jamaican accent which also was confounding to people because it's like, well, wait, 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 wait. Why are you Chinese and you talk like that? Um, My mother taught us to challenge every racist statement, comment, action, no matter who it came from. And I challenged them even when they came from the nuns. I spent 12 years in Catholic school. And believe me, those who were present when I was in classrooms or walking down the hallway or even sometimes the the sentiments of the nuns, but I challenged it all. And I've pretty much gone through life doing that. And I can't I don't want to depict myself as a crusader because I'm not. 
But what I'm also not is the person who cringes quietly while these things Mm. are being said around me. So that's kind of how my perspective and character is regarding racism. And I have also in the past, oh, maybe eight, nine years since I've been speaking on book and documentary tours within Mm. the Chinese American and Chinese community, you know, throughout the Western world and also in China. But I've, I've had people come up to me, good intentioned Chinese descent people say, oh, that's why you're so successful. You're Chinese. And I say, um, no, no, no. When you say that, that suggests that the reason why I'm successful, whatever that means, is because I'm mixed with Chinese. But the same drive and determination that my biracial mother instilled in us, half Chinese, half Black, also came from our father, who was Black. So to say that the success is attributable because I'm part Chinese, I tell them, is racist. Don't say that. Because then... On the opposite side, it sounds like if I wasn't successful, it would be because I'm black. Right. And they accept it with, you know, some humility, certainly chagrin. And usually they apologize. In fact, they always apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it that way. No, I, I know you didn't mean it that way. But the way you said it, you say it to me because you think I will take it as a compliment. But I don't. It's not a compliment. My success isn't because of my race. Oh, that's very clear. Having known <laughs> you, that's very clear. Uh, your, your piss and vinegar transcends any kind of particular, <laughs> particular boxes, which is why I yeah, look up to you. But in that vein, would you give the story of your mom looking at your report card that came home with a mark that she may have had a question about? Sure. So in my, uh, you know, as I said, I went to 12 years of Catholic school, first grammar school in Harlem and um, high school in the Bronx. So what the usual practice was, was, you know, in my neighborhood report card day, and I was in a um, economically depressed neighborhood, right? So report card day, come home with your report card. And sometimes actually on the way, the one block walk from my school to my apartment building to our tenement building, I would get stopped by some of the the leaders of my block, many of whom were numbers runners or, you know, they 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 dealt in in hot merchandise, but they'd say, hey baby, you know, let me see your report card. And I'd proudly hand them my report card. Oh my God, it's you're so smart. And I could walk away just in that encounter with a dollar or two dollars or fifty cents. Mm-hmm. People rewarded me for, for good grades. So I got to my house and my mom says, after seeing my report card, she's uh, looking at it and she's got the stern look on her face. And she says to me, she said, I did not come to this country for you to get a B. And it was, it was frightening. Mm. The stern look on her face and the uh, disappointment combined with anger, but it was a comeuppance that never left me in that what I recognized in that moment was my mother was making it clear, I sacrificed for you, and you have a responsibility to me, to your family, to yourself. She said, if I thought that a B was the best that you could do, then I'd be okay with it. But you know, and I know, and she never had to finish that sentence. And at that point, I was eight years old, I was in the third grade. I knew that my mother was striving for excellence and she wouldn't accept anything less. And again, that doesn't have anything to do with race. That has to do with the expectations that you set for your children. So as my mother said, you know, She grew up in Jamaica hearing about the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and all the above. And she literally said to us, you're going to be rich. I came to this country 
so that my family would be rich. If the Rockefellers and the Carnegies could do it, then by God, you can do it too. And, and we just, you know, we had no other relatives around. So, you know, our mother was the voice of reason, the deus ex machina. She set the <laughs> laws, she set the rules. It was all like, and all you could say is, okay, mommy. And that was it. Mm. Yeah, that story always, I always take two things from it. First of all, to your point, her unwavering belief in the capacity of her children, mm. which I think is so important for every parent to feed in to their child. But also in that moment, this reflection of the pressures and the path she had chosen for herself, which was fraught with so many obstacles. Mm -hmm. And rather than becoming a martyr to her children, right? Like, oh, I've done this for you. It was more like, hey, hold on. Nobody's better than we are. We're better than nobody else. It's a matter mm -hmm. of commitment and capacity. So let's get to it. That's what I love about that story. I really do love hearing it. She was on a mission. I mean, she was yes. on a mission. Yes. And she intended her children to be on that mission too. In fact, one could say that we were her mission. Yes. You know, my mother did say to us when we were children, I never intended to have children. And the way she grew up, I, under I understood that statement. I never intended to have children. But her attitude was, but I have children. And because you are my children, you are going to be the best. Do you mm -hmm. understand? And mm -hmm. we were expected to reply. This wasn't just kind of a, a statement that just sort of flitters into the ether. It required a response. Do you understand? Yes, mommy. All right, fine. And that was it. And did that prove to motivate? Uh, I mean, I know it applied pressure, but did it prove to motivate as well? Yeah. 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 You know, I grew up in a neighborhood where, quite honestly, many of the young girls by the time they were 16, 15, 16 years old, had already engaged in sexual activity. Some of them, you know, on occasion, I, there would be some who were pregnant. One who was actually my best friend, she was two years older than me, went to public school and was pregnant at 16. We had moved away when I was 14 um, to another part of Harlem. But I remember growing up in my neighborhood and my mother saying to me, you will not get trapped here. Mm. Don't you even think about having mm -hmm. sex with boys. Don't you even think about, you know. And all the while, my mother, because of how she grew up, again, didn't know that I was supposed to have a curfew. I wasn't going out to parties and stuff until like 10 or 11 at night. And I'd come home sometimes four or five o'clock in the morning Never having gotten into any trouble. We had a party, you're dancing or whatever. And after the party's over, you know, you go to a restaurant and eat chicken and waffles or something and eventually come home. Well, my brother, my older brother is two years older than I am. And my oldest brother is five years older. So my mother grew up in a circumstance where for her, the whole idea of independence was important. And she saw financial independence as a start of it. So she made us her mission. She came to the United States. Quite honestly, I mean, this is, this is an aside, but my mother came to the United States under the, the Chinese immigration quota. Mm. <laughs> um, beginning in 1882, there were a series of laws passed here in the United States initiated by a politician from California and these became collectively known as the Chinese Exclusion Acts. And they were renewed about every five to 10 years in Congress. And what these did was, these were the laws that ensured that Chinese could never own property, had no right to public school, to voting. There were no citizens' rights. You could pay taxes and you could live here, but you couldn't own property. And that series of laws ended in 1944 because when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, the United States wanted to retaliate, but their most Pacific outpost was Hawaii, which had just been destroyed. Hmm. So they got into a relationship with China, which they'd never been on good terms with. 
And that's how China and the United States became allies in World War II. They flew to China to refuel before bombing Japan. So what ultimately happened then is in um, 1945, the president of the United States um, rescinded the Chinese Exclusion Acts. And instead, what was passed was a law that said 105 total, 105 Chinese could get visas to come to the United States annually. Somehow my mother, who had no Chinese citizenship, was able to get one of those visas from Jamaica to come to the United States. She was, in fact, the daughter of a Chinese national, but she had no relationship with him. But I figured, I I make up in my mind that what probably happened was the United States was looking for Chinese who weren't too Chinese. So in the Caribbean, there were lots of, lots and lots, frankly, of Chinese Caribbeans whose fathers and grandfathers had come from China. So in this regard, for my mother, it was if the Carnegies can do it and the Rockefellers can do it, then by God, my children can do it. So my oldest brother and I really did make career decisions that would get us into positions of better financial standing. I mean, we, mm. we strategized about it. We planned it from when we were teenagers. How are we going to do this and how are we going to do that? So that probably by the time my brother was in his 40s and I was in my 30s, we had become millionaires. I remember the three of you were very, very close and mm-hmm. that they took it upon themselves to not over- supervise, but they were there to protect. Mm -hmm. I remember there was, I think you told a story to me once about that you all were playing in the street and you had just gone out of sight and they stopped what they Mm -hmm. were doing just to count heads, if you will. And I, yeah, that's so important in a family, no matter, no matter where you are, but certainly to know that those relationships have gone on for these, these businesses that you folks now are sit atop of is, is a testament to your mom. Yeah, that was why my mother was okay with me going out at 10 or 11 o'clock at night at the age of 14, 15. She knew nothing was going to happen because my brothers were in, I could say I was in their orbit or they were in my orbit, but we were always around each other. And there was never going to be any sexual activity for me on my part because my brothers were like, uh, get away from my sister. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. I had sentinels that were assigned by my mother who, who, who uh, you know, they were very effective. And on top of that, I was raised with the mindset that that's just not what we do. You know, whoever the we are, it was our little family, our unit. When my mother would say we, she wasn't talking about a greater population or a greater community. Because in her mind, we didn't belong to a greater population or a greater community. We were our own nation, her and her three children. We don't do that. This is what we do. And we would say, okay, mom. You know, I love that notion of identity, that it is the four of you versus that royal we. We'll take a short break and be back with Paula Madison. The McFarlane Group works with nonprofit social impact organizations who are determined to serve more. We help leadership meet their intended outcomes, expand their portfolio of services, and provide greater impact to those they serve. Our process brings clarity, confidence, and control to their work. Clarity by working with an organization to achieve meaningful results, confidence in themselves and their team to implement their strategy, and control to take high-value actions to achieve their intended results. Let's connect to see how we can walk alongside you to develop a strategy for you and your organization for greater impact to serve more. Contact us at www.themcfarlandgroup.com. And now, back to our conversation. So Paula, I want to talk about having this group of people, right, these four very strong people filled with your mother's commitment and her belief in your capacity and finding yourselves within a community that already is othered by society, marginalized Mm -hmm. by society. And then there is this sense 
of a different kind of belonging because of your background? How did you handle this notion of belonging when you guys were growing up? Sure. To be perfectly honest, we didn't feel like we belonged anywhere. We fit in until people saw our mother, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the the kids in our neighborhood and their parents, they kind of, you know, they got kind of used to it. And my mother was not a very sociable person. She almost never came outside. She was not the, hi, how are you? How are you? you?" My mother didn't do that. She would give you a wave on her way to the store or the market, and she would come back. And she stayed in her, we lived in a first floor tenement apartment. And she stayed in there. And then when she expected us to come in, you know, we knew what time to come in. But if she wanted to just see what we were doing, she would come out and stand on the stoop and look at us. And, you know, and then stand there for maybe five, ten minutes and go back in. So that for us, we never really felt that we belonged. What we, again, our belonging was to our own family community. We lived there, right? We lived in that neighborhood. When we moved, we lived in that neighborhood. And I don't want to suggest that we didn't have friends. And I also don't want to suggest that we didn't have friends come to our house. Our mother invited us to have our friends come into our apartment. On any given afternoon after school, there'd probably be 10 kids sitting on the floor of our little tiny living room watching our black and white TV, Howdy Doody, you know, Rin Tin Tin. My mother encouraged us to have other kids come because she could watch, because Mm. she could see who the other children were, how they behaved. And then we were told, you can't play with so-and-so because so-and-so is a bad boy. I like so-and-so because he's, he's very kind. He's very respectful to his mother. So my mother was weeding out for us who she felt had the kind of characteristics that she wanted reinforced. And so because she grew up pretty much as an abandoned child, our neighborhood had people who wouldn't necessarily have been seen as routine in, say, you know, middle class neighborhoods. You know, we had the woman who was the numbers runner. She handled the gambling. We had a woman who was a heroin addict who had children. And sometimes when she'd go off on a binge, her children would just still be outside. And my mother would say, come inside, come inside, come to my house. Mm. And my mother's first thing would be, her phrase was, I'll drop you into the bathtub. Everybody get a bath. Everybody would have to get a bath. And then she'd feed them and clothe them. Whatever we had, she would extend it. And these kids would be at our home at our apartment until their mother showed up. My mother would try to counsel their mother. Listen, you can't leave your children alone. I know, Miss Nell, I know. Thank you so much for taking care of them. And then, you know, whatever they had, if they could give my mother a few dollars, not that that was the reason why, but she was seen as the person for whom if you went off on a binge and you weren't sure where your kids were, go to Miss Nell's apartment. She probably has them there. So that's how we were raised. My mother was was very much an advocate, but if she saw children who she thought by their behavior, these children were not good for us. These were not the, you know, no, 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 not not so-and-so, so-and-so steals. I've seen so-and-so curse out Miss Jones, and we're not having that. So our sense of belonging was probably, in many instances, people wanted to belong with us than mm. us wanting to belong with them, okay? That's interesting, yeah. And because of that, my oldest brother was the first kid in our neighborhood to go to college, right? He went to Williams College and then on to Harvard Business School. We were bookish, but we also hung out to all hours. I was out, you know, jumping double dutch, running in the park. My brothers played stickball and ring alivio till the sun went down. We were kids of the neighborhood, But unlike most of the kids in our neighborhood, we didn't have any relatives. Most of the people in our neighborhood were from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. And you had whole families that had chain migration move to Harlem. 
So if this kid was my friend, this kid's cousin lived around the corner and their grandmother lived three blocks away. That's the kind of neighborhood it was. And we were singular. We didn't have any extensions and concentric circles of relatives. So for us, for us, our behavior was guided by and overseen by our mother. And she was without question. Today it's called a tiger mom. But even (laughs) back then, I used to think of my mother as a lioness. Mm. And so we were known as kids who were different, but different in a way that you actually don't want to mess with them. Yeah. So it, it seems like this was just a bedrock to the work you really continued to pursue, correct? But you did, particularly for a time at NBC, mm-hmm. and I mean, it all makes sense, right? The fire in the belly, it just all makes sense, Paula. And what I've learned a bit through this series, particularly with, as I was telling you, Joshua Mundy from Pivot Technology School here in Nashville and the incredible work he's doing, mm-hmm. that this notion of belonging, mm-hmm. if we move you know, from schools to workplace to community, mm-hmm. now I'm just, I'm kind of getting to vocabulary, which is not to lessen the conversation any, but it, it's really just to try to help to instruct a little bit more. I think at times we hear the word diversity or diversification or we're diversified. And again, if you think about communities or schools or uh, workplaces, it's as though if you walk into a room and see a variety of colors of skin, wow, right? There's a congratulatory feeling. And for those who are running the place, it's a self-congratulatory feeling. What I've learned is that that can be such a mirage to the reality. Mm -hmm. And so this notion of inclusion, Mm -hmm. which it seems like people of color have to kind of stake that. But what I've also learned is there doesn't seem to be this understanding that inclusion does not mean assimilation, right? Like we want you in our company because it helps us but this is how it, this is how it's done. Here's our culture versus allowing someone and a woman, Kimberly Tate from Asurian is the person who put this notion into my mind of so that you can come to work or school or into your community or wherever your associations are and be your best self, not the self that others hope you will fit into. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Just sure. the tension between diversity and inclusion. Well, Look, I became the chief diversity officer for NBC Universal, carried another title. It carried another title, executive vice president. And I'm going to start this way. So I was asked to consider the role and I turned it down. At that point, I was president and general manager of the NBC station here in Los Angeles. And I was the regional general manager of the two Telemundo stations we owned. I turned it down because I said to the CEO of our company, I'm not a consultant. I don't see myself as a person who I'm going to give that person advice and that person can take it or not take it. That seems to be a waste of my time. Mm. His reply was, well, we've just... You know, we acquired Telemundo, yes. We acquired Universal, yes. And we need to bring these people into the core values of GE, which is our parent company, okay? Including regarding diversity, et cetera. Got it. I turned the job down, and then probably within a week, Don Imus, the radio talent, said on his radio show, which was simulcast as a television show on CNBC, which was owned by NBC, right? He called the Rutgers women's basketball team nappy-headed hoes, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, like many people, was outraged. And I was outraged in a variety of, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is these are young women, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, just doing their 
best to be great athletes? What, why would you even, what prompts you to demean them? So within a week or so, our relationship with him was over. I decided that I would in fact take that job, but I stated it to our CEO this way. I'll take the job only if I report directly to you. I don't report to HR. I don't report to legal. I don't, I report to the chief executive officer. Okay. And I want my same compensation that I had in a functional role as I had in an operational role. Okay. Now, Why would I do that? Because I see my value. I saw myself as a person who was a proven, excellent executive. You want me to take on another assignment, which I'm fine with. If they had assigned me to be the person who ran all the NBC stations west of the Mississippi, same thing. I didn't see it as anything other than a new challenge and a continuation of how I'd been working in the company anyway. Now, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, it seems to me that you have to get into a mindset, first of all, of convincing somebody, somebody who has excluded you has to now include you. I've never seen myself as that. I see myself as a contributor and the fact that I am a black person is a cherry on top for the company. Mm. You all get to benefit from my, oh, I'll call it um, diverse background. Although you could slice it a million ways and all kinds of people are diverse depending upon what you define as diversity. But in this regard, let's call it race, gender, culture, right? And I'm the person who, when you tell me that you want me to lead diversity and inclusion for the corporation, for the entire enterprise, I say to you, I will come back to you with my budget and my staff. So I had a staff of about 20 people. You don't find that much these days when you're seeing all these announcements of somebody being named as chief diversity officer or whatever. And usually these people report to HR. Now, again, when you start out thinking of yourself in a certain way as an executive, as the top performers on a team, why would I report to somebody who was a peer? Why would I do that? I'm not doing that. So a part of what I would say is that when we think about diversity and inclusion, we have to start first with what the expectation is. You know, I'll go back to, I didn't come to this country for you to get a B. Mm. I didn't join this company for me to run around and serve and face my tail. I didn't join this company for you to name me a diversity and inclusion leader and then put all kinds of obstacles in my way for me to make the significant changes. I'm not doing that. So I start first with, it's a negotiation. What do you mean by diversity and inclusion? And you tell me what your goals are. That's what I say to the chief executive officer. Mm. What are your goals? And then let's sit down and talk about them. And perhaps we will be collaborative. Perhaps we will negotiate. But it's just like when I sit down with you and you tell me that my Revenue targets are however many tens of millions or hundreds of millions. If that's what it is that I am to achieve, then that is also what we will talk about in terms of diversity and inclusion. It's Mm. not this nebulous kind of, oh, can we just make it better? Oh, look, there are more faces of people of color in the room. What is the point if what you have done is bring in faces of people of color who have no more power nor executive authority than they had yesterday. That's a game. And that's why, frankly, for a lot of folks, we recognize that a lot of these positions 
are frankly BS. Mm. This cannot be the one where the chief executive says, oh, you know, Jane, she and I really get along. And maybe Jane is in business affairs or maybe Jane's in HR. And I'm going to appoint Jane to head diversity and inclusion. Why? Oh, Jane is a white woman. And Jane has some understanding of personnel and the policies. So we'll put her to be the chief diversity officer. Oh, let's get John. John has been in the production part of whatever, whatever. I get along with him, a really good guy. I'm going to ask him to take the role. And John takes the role. Where's the training? Where's the background? Where is the agreed upon metrics and goal setting? Where are those? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most times they don't exist. So for me, it isn't even about the word diversity nor the word inclusion. Let's just talk about fair employment. Let's just talk about representation. Right. Because by the way, the words diversity and inclusion have now fallen into the realm of fatigue, diversity mm-hmm. fatigue, mm-hmm. inclusion fatigue. Oh God, here comes so-and-so again. Oh God, mm-hmm. it's just another diversity thing. Oh God. See, to understand how I handled it, you'd have to understand that I will not put up with that. Mm-hmm. I will not put up with that. Just like you won't say to me, you know, when I was news director in New York, it took one year for all of our newscasts to become number one in all day parts. How did you do that? Oh my God, how did you do that? Hmm. How how do you get control of a budget? Well, in my case, you zero base. Mm -hmm. I zero base it. I meet with everybody who spends money. We're going to go through the strategies. We're going to go through the practices. We're going to set, talk. you help build the budget. This is not me layering it upon you. So when we talk about how do we make changes regarding diversity and inclusion, when you have somebody who has neither the power nor the authority, neither the power nor the authority to mandate a change, and now you're a what? You're a consultant. Well, I don't know if I want to do that. The yeah. person you're talking to has leeway. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. See, I don't operate that way. If you're going to be successful, set targets. They must be measurable. And what else? Your compensation has to be based on the successful achievement and attainment of those goals. If not, you're a failure. Now, when we do diversity and inclusion, and we look at the needle barely moves, the needle barely moves, or last year we had 10 executives who were in, who were direct reports to the chairman or the CEO. And this year of those 10, one is a person of color and we pat ourselves on the back. Hmm. No, no, uh -uh. Mm -hmm. no, because that says you're not serious. Hmm. And I get it. Because a lot of people aren't, but those are not the people with whom I am going to spend my time. This whole business of diversity and inclusion, by the way, to the extent that these are buzz phrases, nothing significant will happen unless there are metrics, goals, report outs, and it's tied to your compensation. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I also think. I think for many, particularly in these times, right, since in this more heightened time, since Mr. Floyd's murder, I, I, I do believe that there is this seeking of assuagement of guilt. We get a little bit beyond window dressing, right, a little bit beyond the quintessential pull-up bureau picture of like who's still in charge, right? So you have people of mm-hmm. color, you can self-congratulate, the rest of the world can say, wow, look, you can espouse to being woke. And I think that that, in fact, Reverend Stephen Handy in a past podcast, he said, be very careful of the, of the seduction of comfort. So doing this work is lifelong because those who have been oppressed have been in this for hundreds of years. And if you are seeking forgiveness, then be careful because 
just seeking forgiveness, you're asking the oppressed to forgive the oppressor, but you're not, you're not looking for solutions. You're just looking for salve, which is the difference when you were approached by NBC. Mm-hmm. So for you, Paula, what, what are some long-term solutions? And I understand the one you've just laid obviously is bedrock, but what are some long-term solutions to move the conversation from this salve, right? This mm-hmm the seduction of comfort, the seduction of, well, I know a little bit and now I feel perhaps one day I'll be woke and then all will be well and I'll feel forgiven and it wasn't me anyway. And so all this stuff wrapped up in, seriously believe white majority folks think about this notion of of how to fix these altercations and how to make it right. And what's the next step? I think what has to be taken out of the equation, first of all, is forgiveness. Fixing doesn't mean that one of the end results will be forgiveness. Maybe it has to do, it comes from the Judeo, you know, Christian construct of, oh, we did something bad and please, I'm so sorry. And okay, all is forgiven. I, I would take that out of the equation entirely. It has everything to do, in my estimation, more of writing the universe, make it right. It isn't who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, who owes, who is due. It's let's get it fixed. Because when we get it fixed, ultimately what will happen is if we steward it properly, if we don't think, oh, done, and then you sort of you know uh, brush right. off your hands and walk away, It's never going to be that. It will never, ever be that because we are living, breathing people. And this is a living, breathing civilization. Things will continue to change. You just have to continue to seek what's fair. Make it right. And sometimes, you know, it may be a little balanced this way. It may be a little balanced that way. Look, I will tell you right now that there was a a book that came out 2018, 2019. They were her property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. You've heard of that book? Mm -hmm. And somewhere in here, somewhere in here, when you understand, like, wow, so 40% of all enslaved Africans in this country were owned by white women. That's a fact. And if that is a fact... Is there supposed to be forgiveness in that? Or do we just work towards making it right? But what Mm. we know is that embedded in the culture, embedded in the culture is a legacy of somebody is the owner and somebody is the owned, right? Yeah. That's what has to be addressed. Yes. I'm not looking for you to feel guilty because your ancestors owned my ancestors for whatever that means. I am looking for you to treat me fairly, present and future. That's Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not wiping out the legacy of what happened because it serves as an education. It's a point that we need to look at to say, we can't ever let that happen again. Like last Wednesday, like what happened with the insurrectionists at the Capitol. We can't ever let that happen again. So it isn't the how long are we going to have to pay for this? I didn't own slaves, so why are you blaming me? But you're still benefiting from it. Right. And so all you have to do is work to make it right. Now, let's agree upon what right is. And then let's and that, again, involves a definition of goals, and we set metrics. How do we measure the change? How do we measure the progress? There were some of us like me walking around who said, wow, Obama, yay, we got got our black president, but there's going to be hell to pay when he's not in office. You know how many of us have said that? And it's like, well, there you go. There it is. There it is. Because it's a backlash, because it was seen by some as 
okay. I mean, okay. I feel guilty. Okay, this is the right thing to do. And then when that administration didn't fulfill whatever all the fantasies were, what the people thought, whoever the, see, this is why we couldn't do it. The goal is to make it right. Not every move that every president, every administration makes is the right one for all, but it does come down to where you stand and what you're going to stand for. Mm. I'm right now, for all of the things that I'm glad to see, that the, the cabinet and this administration is going to be like and look like and all of that, I'm also excited that we're going to rejoin the Paris Accords. Because what's happened to the environment, to me, is a part of how you are destroying the balance of the universe. Nothing will go right if what we're seeing are icebergs cleaving and temperatures getting hotter or colder. It's throwing everything off. So... In addition to all of the, let's deal with the Supreme Court issues, let's deal with racism, let's deal with with, with sexism, let's deal with the imbalance of rich and poor, let's deal with all that. But we also need to deal with the environment because that is what will take us all out. Yes. Gosh, you just, oh my goodness, this this whole make it right just really... It just broadens the understanding of the capacity we all have with a commitment we make to make it right and not hide behind either what you're saying are these kind of short-term feel-good fixes, which really aren't fixes. But I also appreciate, again, it's not just acts of kindness. It's defining goals, setting metrics, figuring out how to measure progress, and then understanding when you have hit certain end goals. And that because this is in its own self an evolution, there are going to be fits and starts. There are going to be great moments of progress or great moments of advancement. And then there could be many years of pulling back as we have just seen. So that makes the conversation so much larger and allows people, I believe, instead of getting a to-do list to assuage guilt, to try to get forgiveness, you've made the conversation so much larger so that people's own gifts and own capacity and commitments, which we will hope becomes much more defined for themselves and for everyone else, and that they push their capacity so it is sacrificial in some senses. So for you to end the conversation with the notion of, look, if we don't get our earth together, this will be window dressing. All this talk about racism and sexism and political differences. And we should be so lucky that this is all we're thinking about. So for you to redefine the whole mission to go back to, if we aren't healthy as a planet, this other stuff just won't matter, really does cause anyone listening to understand that you can take the easy road and try to get a black friend, right? This is horrible to say, but Mm -hmm. you know, just Mm -hmm. get a black, or you can think about the domino effect that all this complexity of life brings to your point so that all we're trying to do moving forward and all is not this kind of a justification like that's all we need to do, but that all, like everything, all motion is trying to make it right. So much, so much different. Paula, I don't know how to thank you for this. I wish we had more time. You and I will have to talk offline. And I just, I love how this is all wrapped. As we do wrap though, I'm so interested. I do want everyone to know and will reiterate again that the book Finding Samuel Lowe is, is not only delightful to read, but has in the middle this incredible expose of, and I may not have used the right word, of photographs of your family's life. And it tells its own story for those of us who are visual. And then the documentary, Finding Samuel Lowe, is something everyone should find. FindingSamuelLowe.com can get you to those places. But you also, just as we end, because I, I want to hear how your mom's teaching of parenting for you has affected 
your daughter, whom you now have a podcast with, which is hysterical, and how it influenced your parenting as we wrap. Well, sure. And by the way, I am right now under contract in development for my book to be a limited TV series. Oh, my gosh. uh, I'm working with two studios, one legendary, which is based in China, and another one here in the United States, which is huge and massive, and I can't say their name yet. Congratulations. Thank you. But it's for airing in both um, the U.S. and China. Exciting. The way that my daughter was raised, you know, my daughter had the blessing of my mom living with us. So Mm -hmm. for the first nine, 10 years of my daughter's life, she was raised. I worked and grandma was there to be, you know, grandma. Mm -hmm. And it was great. So my daughter has, she's a forensic psychiatrist. And she's a medical director of a psychiatric hospital here in Los Angeles. And she really does see as her mission. She's also on a show called Married to Medicine Los Angeles. But she sees as her mission. My daughter is so happy, pleased when her patients who frequently are veterans or people who have had um, very difficult upbringings, a lot of schizophrenics, she sees as her role to work with people who come from backgrounds of mental health because she thinks that by how she was in our family, which which in my family, we have bipolar, we have severe depression, we have anxiety. She feels that she can be helpful to these people. So I've always kind of marveled at this being my daughter, who is very much creative in a different kind of way than I am, but she sees herself as sort of playing across many different landscapes. And it's my responsibility. I've always seen my responsibility as her mother to help her blossom and grow, but to also have her understand that she's to contribute to the world. It's the philosophy of you have to leave the world a better place than you found it. And if you just work within that, a better place than you found it, it'll be great. So yeah, that's my daughter. And the next thrill, of course, is that I have a grandson who's about to be 14. Mm -hmm. And he's just the funniest, most brilliant. It's like for me, watching each generation blossom and thrive Mm -hmm. is so exciting. And by the way, just so we're clear, we identify as Black. We identify as African American, but we also identify as Black and Chinese as uh, and my grand black and Puerto Rican, but we identify as black primarily. Why? Because that's primarily how we present. And mm-hmm. so we're completely good with that. I'm very proud of it. I had a young woman when I worked at, at NBC and I was a GE corporate officer. She came up to me and with tears in her eyes and said, I just want you to know how important it is to some of us that you wear your hair natural, that you wear an afro. And I said, no, great. I mean, why? Because for a lot of us, that's still a big issue. We are looked down upon if we go to work other than with straight hair. I said, go to work with your hair in a coiffed fashion, whether it's you're wearing it natural or otherwise. And if someone penalizes you for wearing your hair natural, please contact me. Yes. We must be able to come to life, to work, to wherever we are, to be our best selves. And the way to do that from this conversation I've learned is to make it right for others as well as for yourself so you can be your best self. And I love the line of, it's not only where you stand, it is much more, it's what you stand for. And you certainly epitomize that, certainly in my life. And I'm just so honored, Paula, that you gave us time here It's just been wonderful. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deb. I appreciate it. And thank you for being my friend. Oh, my goodness. What an honor. Thank you so much, Paula. As ever, Paula Madison takes no prisoners. My thanks to her for her leadership and her unvarnished courage to make the world better by never backing down looking for the best in everyone and challenging all of us to bring our best selves to our work every day so that everyone can thrive in a community that honors them and includes all of who they are for the betterment of everyone. 
I recommend her memoir, Finding Samuel Lowe, and her documentary bearing the same title. Please go to FindingSamuelLowe.com to find out more about Paula's current efforts. I've learned so much during this series. I will work every day to call out racism, work to recalibrate systems that are based on someone gaining access or opportunity based on the color of their skin. I will continue to put myself in new situations to become more aware of how my actions will impact the creation of a better day for all. There is so much to be done, but as Paula refused to forgive and simply asked for whites to make it right, I'll follow that lead and work to make things right. Thank you for listening to this and all of our episodes on 3AM, What's Keeping You Up at Night, a production of the McFarland Group. We thank Relationary Marketing for their continued support of our work. My name is Deb McFarlane Enright. Until next time.